If you have your Bibles, turn in them to 2 Timothy chapter 2. If you don't have your Bibles, the scripture we're looking at is on the inside cover of your bulletin. There's also there a place to take notes. We're going to be looking at 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 6 through 9 today, but we're going to start our reading in verse 1 just to catch the context. So this is 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. Friends, listen, this is God's word. But understand this, that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the truth. Men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as also was that of those two men. This is God's Word. So I want to remind us of where we are, um, what we've seen so far. This is a review of the sermons that we've seen. Um, we're talking about how do we respond to opposition. Right? And with these last two messages, it's really about understanding the nature of where opposition comes from. But we saw first that when opposition comes, whether it's public or private, whether it's personal or in a group, um, you want to make sure first that you discern the real issues and focus on that. Right? You want to second repent of what you've done. So that means confess your sin and your, what you've contributed to the mess um, and, and then turn from that. Third, you're supposed to do this in communities. So you want to pursue intentional community. Right? You want the wisdom of others. Don't do it alone. Okay, then fourth, we saw that we need to have healthy boundaries. Right? That our responsibility is to give them Jesus' grace and truth and then let God change their hearts. Then last week we saw that it's, that it's not you. That sometimes opposition comes from under the surface. And then today, we're going to see that it's not them. Okay? That there are bad teachers who corrupt people. Okay, not always, but sometimes there are evil forces and bad teachers behind the opposition. Okay, that's what we're going to see today. Sometimes opposition that we face is because people that we're in opposition with or we're in a conflict with are espousing ideas that they have been taught. It's important for us to recognize that so that we can treat them accordingly. And it's also important for us to understand that there are a lot of people who are getting rich today by keeping people stuck in bad teaching. Okay, these are things that we're going to see today. Uh, But before we look at this, I want to touch on a two-word phrase that may have frustrated some of you as I read the Scripture this morning. It's in verse 6. right? Those who creep into households and capture weak women. Anybody see that and get frustrated? Anybody's like, come on, hey, wait a second. Like, there goes the Bible again, right? It's a sexist book that degrades women. 
Well, I think it's important for us to address this. Um, you have to understand that in the first century, listen to me, in the first century, there was only one culture that did not degrade women. Okay? There was only one culture that did not degrade women. In every other part of the culture, women were treated as property. They were treated as second-class citizens, typically property of their husbands or their fathers. Women had almost no rights except for one culture, and that culture actually was the church. Okay, that culture was Christianity. This passage, verse 6, is doing something that no one else in the first century would do. Okay, this passage isn't degrading women, it's not insulting women, it's actually speaking up for women who are being abused. Okay? That's what this passage is doing. This passage is not describing all women as weak. It's not saying that all women are weak. But this passage um, and Christianity spoke up for people in general that no one cared about. Christianity knew that God cared about the most vulnerable in our society, and so the church did too. And so this is Paul speaking up for women who are being degraded. Okay, So it's actually the opposite of what you might think. And so just to give you a modern example of this, think about one of our mercy ministries, right? We mentioned already, Generate Hope, right? Generate Hope. So if we were to say about Generate Hope, look, these poor women who have been ensnared by the abusive slavery of a pimp, would we be degrading them? I mean, is that degrading to women to say, oh, these poor women who have been enslaved by the abusive uh, behavior of a pimp? No, that doesn't, that doesn't degrade them. It doesn't say that all women are in that place, but it expresses concern for those women and strong opposition to those who are enslaving them. And that is what this passage is doing. And this is the point that we're going to see today, that there are people in the world today who enslave others, and it's false teaching that often produces the opposition that we endure. Okay, and so the first thing we're going to see this is the first point in your outline, is that without the gospel, life can spiral out of control. Okay? Without the gospel, life can spiral out of control. So I want to give you the description in these verses, from verses 6 to 9, really verses 6 and 7. Um, I want you to see this in a little bit of a visual mode. Okay? The description here starts with, it talks about people who are burdened with sins. Right? You see that in verse 6? Kind of in the middle there, they're burdened with sins. So I want to walk through with you how this burden works. Okay? So, here's how it works. Someone sins. Right? They sin. And what happens? Well, after you sin, you typically you feel some measure of guilt. Right? You experience guilt. You know you've done something wrong. You know that your words, your thoughts, your actions either offended God or it hurt somebody else. And so you feel guilty. Well, after you feel guilty, then the next step is that here comes the accusation. Sometimes the accusation comes from your own conscience. Sometimes it comes from the devil. Um, and this is the awful lie of temptation. Right? Temptation promises happiness. It promises joy. It says if you do this, you're going to feel great. If you do this, you're gonna feel, like, you'll feel better if you lash out at this person. If you yell at that person, if you get even with that person, you're going to feel better. You're going to reestablish control. But then the moment that you do, the guilt and the accusation starts. 
Your conscience accuses you, and so does the devil. This is what happens. And that leads to the burden. That leads to the burden. This creates a feeling of burden that you are now carrying around with you because of this thing that you have done. It's a weight on your shoulders. When you see the person that you've hurt or offended, you're reminded of it. If you pray to God, it's there. Right? Sometimes I feel like God saying, so, Stephen, I'm glad to see you. I'm glad to hear from you. Are we going to talk about this or not? Right? We go to God and there it is. You feel it pressing in on your conscience. This is the burden that sin creates. And if you don't have the Gospel, if you don't have the Gospel, you don't know what to do with guilt. Your guilt, you repress it. You ignore it. You try to move away from it. You push it down. Right? You try to dismiss it. You could medicate it. Um, with working out or with drugs or alcohol. You hide from it. Uh, You can hide from it through relationships. I mean, these are ways, um, frankly, these are ways that Paul describes in this verse of learning without truth. Right? The process of ignoring our guilt or trying to deal with it. This is us trying to learn how to handle our guilt without the truth. Right? Verse 7 says this phrase that is so poignant always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. It's like you try and you try and you try, but the guilt just doesn't go away. You try, you try, you try, but the burden doesn't ever seem to lift. And so then you try to believe, well, this isn't a big deal. And so you surround yourself with people who believe that you're a good person, who believe that it's really not that bad. And we keep looking for something new. Right? We keep thinking that, well, maybe the next thing will finally sort life out for us. This is the burden that sin and guilt bring. And I think all of us have this feeling, right? Where you feel like you might be on a treadmill and no matter how fast you run, no matter how hard you go, no matter how long you work, no matter how many different books you read or people that you listen to, right? it never ever seems to really get there. Right? You never ever seem to figure out what you're supposed to do or what you're supposed to feel. I mean, I think like outside of like a moral, well, sometimes it's moral, but not always, but like if you ever try to lose weight, (laughs) right? I mean, this is how it feels. Always learning, but never able to come. I know, now this book is the new latest grace. It'll be my my salvation, right? Try to get your life in order, right? Try to organize your life. And it's like, man... It, it doesn't, like I've read 10 books on getting things done and organizing my life, and man, it just doesn't ever seem to fit. I think, you know, back in terms of sin and guilt, a lot of people feel this way about their spiritual lives, right? They have this sense of, well, when will I ever feel like I know where I stand with God for sure? You know, when will I really know that I know I think our failure is often because we're looking for happiness, but we're not looking for God. Do you know what I mean? Like we're looking for someone to tell us that we're okay and that it's not our fault, but we're not looking for peace with God. We don't come to a knowledge of the truth. We never arrive at the knowledge of the truth because we're ignoring God's truth. And there are lots of teachers that will encourage us to do this. Right? There's lots of people out there who will give us a clean slate. They write books, they talk on TV and on the radio, and they talk as though you don't need anything else 
but just to drop 10 bucks or 15 bucks um, on their book and they will fix it all for you. They'll tell you it's not your fault that you struggle and they'll feed you with things that don't fit with God's truth. And the tragedy is that we get to a place where we'll listen to anybody except for God. People spend all kinds of time learning, but they don't want to have to listen to God or to what He says. And the reality is that if you don't have God, then it's up to you. Okay? If you don't have God, then you're on your own. Now, the amazing thing is that God has made human beings to have incredible strength. Like We have lots of power. We can make significant decisions that can correct and change the course of our lives. And there are times when the changes that we make in our own strength actually have an impact. But man, it's just never enough. Like we don't have enough. You might have strength, but you don't have enough to be able to get to a place where you can finally be satisfied. Because if it's up to you, then it's always up to you and it never ever stops. I think some people get to this place and, um, and they just try to figure out sort of a way to handle things or they try to ignore it and they have some success. The burden of sin sort of fades into the background of their lives. Um, but some people feel this burden and it never goes away. They feel like the learning doesn't help and they move from one thing to another looking for happiness, looking for relief. They're hoping that the next thing will finally sort their lives out. And when this doesn't happen, they become hopeless. They become hopeless, which makes them feel guilty, which then adds to the burden, and now it's not just a line, but it's a cycle. And this is a replicating cycle that continues over and over and over and over for years and years and years. Now, if this is bad enough, this is only half the problem. Okay? This is only half the problem. The description goes on in verse 6. It says they're burdened with sins and they're led astray by various passions. So let's look at that, right? Led astray by various passions. There's another side of the consequences of our sin. Sin not only produces guilt, but it also produces pleasure. Why do we sin? Because it feels good, right? Otherwise we wouldn't do it. Right? It feels good to get away with something. Right? It feels good to steal from work. Right? It feels good to steal. It feels good that sense of like, man, I'm getting away with something. You know, that feels good. It feels good to put someone else down, especially when you're hurting. It feels good to hurt someone else so that we can feel like we're in control, doesn't it? It feels good to lust after sex, to lust after money, to lust after things. In fact, I believe that when we feel trapped by the hopelessness of our guilt, I think we jump to the pleasure side as a coping mechanism. Okay? I think this is what we're doing. The idea of a coping mechanism is when you're going through this circle, this cycle on the right, and you just feel the hopelessness, at some point you just get up to a place where you think, well, look, all I have now is I might as well just give myself to the pleasure of it. I might as well get something good out of it. 
right? I'm already feeling guilty. Why not just go for it? The only way I can deal with the burdens in my life is to focus on the pleasure. At least that's something. And so we cope by focusing on the pleasure side of sin. But then here's what happens. As we pursue the pleasure of sin, this verse said it feeds our passions. Right? Verse 6, we're led astray by various passions. When we sin, we're feeding these passions. We're, we're, we're investing ourselves in these passions. Um, And as this happens, I mean, we looked last week, actually, verses 1 to 5, right? We saw the, the three excessive loves, right? The love of self, the love of money, and the love of pleasure, right? This is what happens when we give ourselves over to these, these loves. They grow. You know, you think, well, if I just give in to temptation, then the temptation will go away at least. Well, maybe for a time, but then it comes back stronger. And you build habits of giving in to temptation, and the, that, that pleasure, that need for pleasure, it's like a drug, right? It gets stronger and stronger, and then you need more and more and more sin to achieve the same level of pleasure. And when we give into these things, we give into these things, we feed the worst parts of ourselves. We become people who are consumed by our own desires and our own selfishness. And then invariably, these passions lead us astray, right? We become led astray by these passions. And then we end up farther from God. We end up farther from God, which leads to a cycle of more and more sin. This is how it works. This is what happens to us in our relationship with sin. Sin promises the world. It promises pleasure. It promises happiness. It promises you control. It promises everything that you want. Um, but what it does is it makes us captive. It makes us captive. We are captive to do the devil's will. That's what chapter 2, verse 26 said. That God leads us to escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. And so friends, I just want to tell you that sin and temptation is a lie. It's a lie. We end up enslaved. And the worst part of it is that we keep thinking that we're free. Like we think we're liberated. We think that we are free. We think that it's not a big deal that we'll learn to like this. We think that it's, 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 we learn not to worry about it. We learn that our good outweighs our bad. We learn that um, even if we never come to the truth, that's okay because you know what? We have enough of the truth and we can do this. But in the meantime, we're just led deeper and deeper into captivity and we end up enslaved to the desires that we can't control. And so, this is what happens without the gospel. Life spirals in these two directions out of control. And what adds to the challenge for us as people who are not unfamiliar with these cycles is the second point, is that your loss, your actual loss of freedom brings some people great gain. Yeah, your loss brings some people great gain. Verse 6, among these people, there are those who creep into households and capture these women. 
They capture them. They enslave them. They're making money off of them. Right? False teachers. They gain, they, they make money, they gain control, they gain a platform, they pad their ego. And these false teachers were doing this in the first century AD. Okay? I just want to underscore this because there's things here in the text that underscore what we looked at last week about the last days. Paul says in the last days, and we talked about how last week, that in the last days, they're the last days of the old covenant. Right? The days leading up to 70 AD. So it was in the early 60s that Paul wrote this, and they were in the last days. We know this because these false teachers that Paul's describing are doing this during the first century. How do I know this? Well, because of what he says. He says, for among them, in verse 6, are those. That's present tense. Okay? Paul doesn't say for among them will be those who. He says there are those. They're there now doing this. He says, who creep into households. Okay, creep, again, is a present tense verb. You know, if this was talking about the end of time at some distant point in the future, Paul would have said, for among them are those who will be those who will creep into. You follow me? Paul says, among them are those who creep and then who capture. um, Also in the present tense. So they were doing this then in the early 60s of the first century A.D. So this is more proof that the last days were going on during the life of Paul and Timothy. Um, These people back then were driven by pleasure, by money, and by personal glory. And here's the worst part about these false teachers. Okay, This is so important for you to understand because it applies directly to us today. The worst part about these false teachers both then and now is that they don't want you to be free. Okay, They look at this and they go, uh-oh, I hope you don't understand this. I hope this was confusing to you because if it was, then you won't try to understand and you'll just give up and we still have you. These people don't want you to be free. Janus and Jambres, mentioned in verse 8, these are, talk about their interaction with Moses. Um, This is a reference to the Exodus, but these two names are not found in the book of Exodus in the Old Testament. Okay? Actually, Jewish tradition assigned names to the Egyptian magicians who duplicated, who tried to duplicate the miracles of Moses. Okay, so you remember that? Um, if you've seen when Moses comes and says, Pharaoh, let my people go, and then he throws his staff down and it turns into a snake, well, then it says the magicians, through their secret arts, also produced snakes. And then it says Moses' snake ate there, so it's kind of like a, you know, nana, 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 my God's bigger than your God. Um, so even if they are doing this by the power of some God or some demon, God's power is still greater. But, um, and then they duplicated the second sign and then the third sign. And then after that, they couldn't duplicate any more of the signs. And so, um, so, that's, and so Jewish tradition gave them a name at some point in history. And they started calling the magicians Janus and Jambres. Okay? And so, um, so the idea behind Janus and Jambres in, during the Exodus was that they were part of Pharaoh's court and they were trying to keep Pharaoh from believing Moses' message. Okay? That's what they were trying to do. They were trying to keep Pharaoh from giving in to Moses. They were trying to keep Pharaoh from acquiescing to the 
power of Moses and his God. They wanted Pharaoh to not take Moses seriously. And in different renditions that I've seen, um, that's kind of what happens, where the Pharaoh sees what Moses does, is kind of like shaken and moved, and then the Egyptian magicians, they do their thing, and he goes, oh, all right, well, for it, whatever then. And he walks away. And so that's what false teachers are trying to do. They're trying then and now to, to discredit the message of Jesus. They don't want you to take the message of Jesus seriously. And so they will try to imitate things that Jesus offers. And they promise the world. They promise, um, they promise happiness. They promise money. They promise success. Uh, they promise order in your life. And what Paul is saying here is that false teachers, people that teach you things that are not in accord with God's truth, they are agents of the devil. Okay? They are not working for God. They are working for the devil. Their goal, just like Janice and Jambres, is to keep people in slavery. Okay? This is what Paul is saying here. And I think the biggest way this happens for us today, most false teaching today says that you can do it on your own. Okay? And they say that in different ways. Or they say that God doesn't care how you do it. Okay? And this means that God, if that's true, this means that God hasn't spoken. This means that God hasn't given His Word. He hasn't given us the Bible. That He hasn't spoken in this book. Because if you can do it this way or just a bunch of other ways then this doesn't matter anymore. This isn't necessary. God hasn't spoken. And again, I would say that without the Bible, if God hasn't spoken clearly, you're on your own. You're on your own. Without the Bible, it's all up to you. And typically, what false teaching does is it tries to get you to and show you how you can get better without God. It was... Um, I mean, one person, this is just a very extravagant example, so it's a very egregious, it's, it's a, an extreme example. Um, a guy named Osmel Sousa, he is the sort of owner or the leader of the organization that runs the beauty pageants in Venezuela, okay? This is what he says. I saw this interview that he did. He says, I say that inner beauty does not exist. That's something that unpretty women invented to justify themselves. And he laughs. And the, 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 the reporter then said, well, where does this standard of beauty come from that you are espousing? And he says, from this little head you see here. And so this is someone who is, is doing it and knows he's doing it, Right? He says, look, if it can be easily fixed with surgery, then why not do it? And what he's offering, what he's offering is salvation. He's offering salvation through appearance. He's saying you can be happy, you can be saved, you can be better, you can be this. People will like you if you just get cosmetic surgery. And it's exploding in Venezuela. It's exploding in Venezuela. He says, this is what our women are doing, and the women turn out perfectly. Man, there are people in our world today who gain great wealth if they can keep this cycle going. The point is to keep you confused. 
Because if you're confused, if it was clear, you'd be able to get out. You might be able to do something about it. But they gain from your burden. They want you down. Okay? It's the uncertainty of what really makes you happy that causes you to keep buying more stuff. Okay? It's the uncertainty. It's, it's the sense of like, I don't know what to do. I'm not sure what's going to make me happy. I'm not sure what the best thing to do is. I'm not sure what job. I'm not sure what this. I'm not sure what that. It's that uncertainty that makes you buy more and more stuff. Because when we're hungry, we'll eat just about anything. And we think that food will make us happy. We think people can make us happy. We think sin can make us happy. In Acts 17, there's this story where Paul is looking at all the idols and, um, and he sees that there's all these idols in the marketplace. And then there's one idol that says, to the unknown God. And I've heard people make fun of the Greeks at the time and say, ha, they were so idolatrous and they were so concerned about making sure they were pleasing all the gods that they even offered one up and like, in case we miss you and you're out there, we'll worship you here. And they make fun of them. And I think, man, you know, we laugh at the unknown God, but this is exactly what we do. Right? Because we don't know what's going to make us happy. Right? And so, you know what? It's another phone. You know what? It's another computer. You know what? It's another relationship. You know what? It's another job. You know what? It's another kid. You know what? It's not having kids. You know what? It's, and, and the cycle continues. You know? And I was thinking, you know, isn't it interesting that when we take our phones out and use them, our hands come together like they're folded in prayer? I just thought of that this week, and I'm not sure if that's, I don't know, right? I don't know. But the reality is that when we don't know what's going to make us happy, we will spend our money and our lives on anything that we think might do it. And there's people getting rich off of us because of it. So what do we do? What do we do? Well, as the people of God, I think that the answer that I'm prompted toward and the answer that I would offer to you, for those of you who are Christians and also for those of you who aren't, I'm going to give you the point that's going to sort of tell you the end and I'm going to walk our way into it. This is our third point. I think the way to get out of this is to love as you have been loved. Love as you have been loved. I think this is the answer. Okay, is to love as you have been loved. We've talked about the devil and his agents, right? The devil tempts and then accuses you when you give in to the temptation that he put in front of you, right? The devil's design is to keep you down, to keep you oppressed, to keep you not free, to keep you thinking it's just going to be the next thing that will make you happy. But friends, this is not what God did. Okay, this is not how God addresses you. God doesn't come with a mighty hand and squash you. He doesn't hold His hand on you and hold you down. Right? The verse that we started our service with says, humble yourselves under God's mighty hand and He lifts you up. This is what God does. He does it through His providence from heaven. But He did it when He came as Jesus Christ. Look at what Jesus says in Matthew 11 verses 28 to 30. He says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. If you are carrying a burden of sin, if you are carrying a load of guilt, if you are carrying the accusations, if those are the tapes playing in your brain, Jesus says, Come to me. 
and I will give you rest. To take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus says, if you are living under the burden, if you are in the cycle of the burden of guilt, if you are enslaved to sin and pleasure and you can't stop, Jesus says, come to me. Come to me. Cast your burdens in my direction. Jesus says, give me your burdens. And guess what? I have taken the burden of your sin on the cross. So I don't just lift it and carry it around, but I actually died for it. I took it to the cross, and there it was punished. There it was dealt with. Jesus lifts our burdens onto the cross, and they roll away. They're gone. The accusations are silenced because now you have the perfect, righteous Jesus standing in between you and the accusations. When accusations come, if you're trusting in Jesus, if you come to Jesus as he invites you to, if you come, when you come, Jesus, you can tell the accusations, you know what? You need to take this up with Jesus. And Jesus will tell the devil or the accusations. Jesus will remind you, I took that. He'll show his nail-pierced hands and say, I've already died for that. That accusation has been forgiven. This is what Jesus does for us. He gives real freedom. And why does he do this? It's because he loves you. It's because he loves you. This is what he does because he loves you. He didn't have to do this. He wasn't forced to do it. He did it because he loves you so much that he came to lift the burden of your sin. He cares. He came to set us free from that cycle of captivity. The cross lays, the cross becomes this road out this road away from those cycles. We just have to come. We just have to come. And it doesn't matter what you've done. Um, we were reminded of this this week if you're doing the city Bible reading in the Old Testament, 2 Chronicles chapter 33, right? If you could make it that far, right? Chapter 33, it talks about Manasseh. Listen to this. See, there's benefit. If you stick in with city Bible reading, you'll see things like this. Manasseh, he became king when he was 12. Not a good idea to give that much power to someone when they're 12. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He erected altars to the Baals. Those were false gods. He worshipped all the host of heaven and served them. He built altars in the house of the Lord. In the temple, he built altars to other gods. Not a good thing. And he burned his sons as an offering in the valley of the son of Hinnom. And he used fortune-telling and omens and sorcery and dealt with mediums and with necromancers. It says he did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Then the Lord spoke to Manasseh and to his people, 
but they paid no attention. Come. Come and be free. Please, leave these things. They paid no attention. Therefore, the Lord brought upon them commanders of the army of the king of Assyria who captured Manasseh with hooks and bound him with chains of bronze and brought him to Babylon. Nose ring here and a chain. So this is Manasseh. And then this is what happened next. Verse 12. And when he was in distress, he entreated the favor of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. He prayed to him, and God was moved by his entreaty. God was moved by his entreaty and heard his plea and brought him again into Jerusalem, into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. This is Jesus saying, come unto me all you, no matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, come to me and I will give you rest. I see you exactly as you are. If you're willing to admit exactly who you are, confess your sins to follow me. My yoke is easy and my load is light. You'll carry responsibility in life, but you will not carry the burden of your sin, your guilt, and the feelings of, man, I just wish I, I, I should be doing more. What's amazing is that Manasseh knew that the Lord was God when he came back. You see that? Verse 12, he humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. He prayed, and, and then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. I know some of you are looking for assurance. Some of you all have questions. Some of you have legitimate questions. Some of you have doubts about Christianity. Um, part of the truth is that you can't ever know for sure until you trust Certainty actually comes after repentance. And didn't we see this in chapter 2? In chapter 2, it says, um, God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. Okay? You can know a lot about God. You can dabble a little bit, but you need to believe to experience it. If you want assurance, you have to say, I do. You have to commit. And when you commit, uh, that's when assurance comes. Some people say, look, if I see it, then I'll believe it. I think God has shown you everything that you need to know on the cross. God has demonstrated His love for you and His willingness to accept you as you are and the power that He has to overcome all of our fear, all of our uncertainty, all of our doubt. And when you trust Him, you find that His presence is everything. And so, for us, for us, this is the love that God gives to us. It's the love that accepts us and lifts off the burden because Jesus died for our sins and sets us free. This is the love that we then have to show to others. Right? This is what Christianity contributes to the world. It's a sacrificial love that says, look, I will bear your burden. 
That's what our God has done for us. And we need to love others as we have been loved. So what does this mean? Well, this is then a call. Like this love that accepts us becomes a love that calls us. And I want you to listen. We have got to be a different kind of community. Our church has got to be different. In our relationships, you have to use your words to set other people free. Okay, God has given you the gospel. He's given you the experience of His Son. And He wants you to use your words to set other people free. I mean, how awful, how disgusting is it if we would use our words to keep other people down? Right? If we would insult other people, if we would belittle other people, right? In our marriages, in our families, parents, spouses, your communication should set people free. In our friendships, man, we need to be lifting people up, not pushing them down. Man, if you tear people down, you are acting like an agent of the devil. That's what the devil does. But Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my load is light because I will lift your burdens. If you're struggling with something, I am not going to beat you up about it. I'm going to come alongside you and lift you up. And so we've got, we've got to be this kind of community. Because people, man, we're in bondage, right? I mean, think about the things that you struggle with. We cannot do this on our own. I mean, God accepts us and He joins us in a family so that we can lift each other up. Because sometimes we can't see God, sometimes we can't feel God, but we have each other. And so I want you if you've experienced any measure of this love from Jesus, will you show this love to others by lifting them up? Would you use your words and your actions this week to lift others up? And if someone comes after you, realize, you know what? Maybe, maybe what's happening is that that person has been badly taught. Maybe that person's living according to some other truth that they've been taught. How can I lift them up? How can I respond to opposition by focusing on what's important? Man, what's most important is for me to show them Jesus. It's for me in some way to help lift them up. Right? That's what God calls me to do. I need to leave it to God to change their heart. But this much, this much I can do. This much we can do. And when we do this, man, our homes, our neighborhoods, our workplaces become filled with light. It may be a little light, but it's light. And this is how we transform the city. I mean, this is how San Diego becomes delighted that there's a church called Harbor that's here. Because the people there respond to opposition differently. And even when I go after them, you know what? They respond to me in ways I just can't explain. But man, like, I guess I imagine that that's how Jesus would have responded. And boy, if I was religious, I guess that's probably what I would want to do. I mean, this is how it works. So let's devote ourselves to this. And let's watch God show up in our lives. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for loving us before you call us to love others. And we do get overwhelmed by the magnitude of your love 
Not when we're on the receiving end. We like that. But Lord, when the call comes for us to love as we've been loved, we just cry out for help. Jesus, will you help us? Will you help us to see that you are there lifting us up? Enable us this week just to ask other people, what can we do to help? Help us to ask that question at home. What can I do to help? Spouses, parents, kids, what can I do to help? Friends and relationships in the workplace, what can I do to help? Father, help us to show the kind of helpful love that just hints at the amazing sacrifice that you made on our behalf. Strengthen us, Father, this week so that we can fill San Diego with more of your presence. And I pray that as we do this, you would give us the assurance that you are with us. Father, as we turn from our ways and follow this way, I know that we'll have a knowledge of the truth. I know that so many other things just won't matter so much because we'll be focused on the one thing that's most important. Set our eyes on that this week, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.